0: I'm Angie Cuero. This is In Deep. Filmmaker Mika Paled's new documentary, Bitter Seeds, is 88 minutes long. And in that time, he notes, three more farmers in India have committed suicide, one every 30 minutes. It's a story about class, poverty, government, the world economy, and the grip Monsanto has on the country's farm industry. Mika Paled joins me for the whole hour in the studio on In Deep.
1: This is a, a, a firestorm of epic proportions.
2: Record heat, record wildfires.
1: The amount of rain that we had, uh, the water levels came up so fast, some of the folks didn't have time to actually pack their things and move out.
2: Florida is flooding, so Republicans fiddle with federal flood insurance. Climate change denial industry smackdown, an appeals court ruling is good for anyone who breathes. Plus, 80% renewable by 2050. Yep. 80% renewable by 2050.
1: Here in the U.S.? Yeah. Say it ain't so. All of that and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: And I'm Desi Doyen.
1: Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Well, he continues to beat that dead solar horse, some people might say on the right. Some people like you, Steve Doocy. This is your Constitutional Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, a lesser man might be amused by this. I am not. Climate denier Michelle Malkin and her family have been evacuated thanks to the Waldo Canyon fire. Near Colorado Springs, I wonder if climate deniers like Michelle Malkin have begun to put two and two together when it's their own livelihoods that are now being uh, threatened by this.
2: Oh, it's only her house, not her livelihood. Her livelihood depends on continuing to deny climate science.
1: (laughs) That indeed. I'm sure she'll start raising money on her evacuation at any moment.
2: Well, you know, the fallout from this extreme weather continues. She's part of the 35,000 people who have evacuated from Colorado Springs, Colorado, to escape that out of Control Waldo Canyon fire in the extremely dry Rocky Mountains. It's just one of several out of control wildfires blasting across the west. As you heard in a press conference on Wednesday, the Colorado Springs fire chief Rich Brown called it a firestorm of epic proportions. The local Forest Service incident commander says the record heat wave stalled over the region is making the fight more difficult.
1: The heat combined with the fuels and everything out there creates a situation that's given us problems. The fuels are at record. Dryness.
2: That record heat wave stretches across the eastern half of the country from the front range of the Rockies through the Midwest and is heading to the Northeast. This week alone, over 1,000 heat records were broken locally, and some towns in Colorado recorded all time high temperature records. And that's a reminder that back in March, 15,000 records were broken in the spring. The hottest place in the country on Wednesday was Hill City, Kansas, that registered a blistering 114 degrees.
1: That was in Phoenix, right?
2: No, in Kansas. That's
1: uh, Las Vegas, right? Nope.
2: 115
1: degrees in Kansas.
2: In June. It's the opposite problem in Florida. I don't recognize anything now.
1: You just can't believe we're looking at this massive amount of water.
2: Tropical storm Debbie this week turned Florida from drought to flood in one day, dumping more than two feet of rain in some places so quickly that residents were caught in fast-rising floods and had to be rescued, according
1: to local officials. The amount of rain that we had, uh, the water levels came up so fast, some of the folks didn't have time to actually pack their things and move out, so they're having to do it after the fact.
2: As of today, it is now officially the wettest June on record for Tampa, Florida. Climate scientists have predicted for decades that global warming would trigger changes in weather patterns toward a trend of more frequent and intense extreme weather events. Coincidentally, the National Flood Insurance Program, which helped farmers in the Midwest in record flooding last year on the Mississippi River, and that will also help Florida residents right now recover from this week's floods. Well, that National Flood Insurance Program expires at the end of this month, but reauthorization of the program for another five years has been blocked in the Senate because of Republican Tea Party Senator Rand Paul, who won't allow a vote on this bipartisan legislation until he gets a vote on an unrelated amendment declaring that human life begins at conception
1: unbelievable so he's going to let people uh lose their houses lose their insurance don't even get me started
2: i know everybody is abuzz about the supreme court ruling on health care but another federal court ruling dropped this week that is arguably as impactful for the nation's future in a victory for anyone who breathes the fourth circuit court of appeals has upheld the environmental protection agency's authority to regulate industrial carbon pollution under the clean air act Ruling against big industrial polluters in a lawsuit brought by the nation's fossil fuel industry, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and the National Mining Association, among others. Two important rulings from this, the court upheld the scientific evidence of climate change and the EPA's authority to issue regulations under the Clean Air Act. Interestingly, the Supreme Court probably won't revisit this since the Roberts Court already ruled on it in 2007. Finally, two numbers to remember, 80% by 2050. The U.S. could get 80% renewable energy by 2050, according to a new study from the U.S. National Renewable Energy Labs, using only commercially available technology that's on the market today.
1: You mean investing billions and billions in new technologies that haven't been invented? Yet.
2: No, it's available today. If we started doing it today, we could have 80% renewable energy by 2050.
1: Yeah, well, we could, except uh, Rand Paul and abortion or something like that. For more on all of our stories today, 80%, huh? By 2050. For more on all of our stories today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider a donation to help the Green News Report stay on the air. We rely on you to keep telling the truth over your public airwaves. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report.
0: This is Indeep. I'm Angie Cuero. We're spending the whole hour this hour on Bitter Seeds. It's a new film from Mika Pellet. His first of the three globalization trilogy films he made came out in 2001, and that was focusing on Walmart and similar big box stores. It was called Store Wars. Bitter Seeds actually is the final of these three, and it's a very somber look at the phenomenon of farmer suicide in India. It focuses on one particular area that's had trouble with its cotton crops. Cotton crops, it turns out, are key to the area's economy. And the, for the farmers, it's a life or death case. So we bring him into the studio to talk about it this hour. Mika, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Angie. Great to be here. Uh,
0: the phenomenon of farmer suicide actually preceded the issues with cotton per persimmon. I mean, there's a lot going on there, many, many layers to this. This dates back how long that it's been a problem?
3: So the farmers, the wave of farmer suicide started in 1997, which was about four or five years before uh, the BT seeds uh, became commercialized. And I use the term BT, that's the name for the genetically modified cotton seeds.
0: Right. And and this is, and as we're going to get into this hour, this is the Monsanto seeds that basically have the stranglehold on the local economy because they're the seeds everyone has now. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I, I want to commend you on not making it just about that. One of the very first lines in the film establishes the stature of the man you focus on throughout. And he points out that he is a farmer. He is of the lowest social consideration. When others are present, he sits on the floor. And this is a guy, I don't know if as a film director you chose him in part for his face. His face is absolutely haunted.
3: And of course I chose him also for his face. Of course. This is a visual medium. Yes. And um, one thing I learned years ago from a, a very successful PBS producer was that she was making films about criminal justice. And she said, you know, I would sometimes do all the research and we will finally get access to some prison to go and interview this person for the first time who has been incarcerated for years uh, while they're innocent. And it's a great story about when I go over there and if I meet that person and if they are not physically appealing and, you know, screen... Screen ready. Uh, Screen ready, for (laughs) lack of a better word. Yeah. uh, Then I'll pass on that because the viewers are not going to be compelled to watch and involved in rooting for that person. You know, I guess it's a statement about how superficial we all are. But uh, to me, this farmer, his name is Ram Krishna, uh, one of the two protagonists of the film, is kind of like a Gary Cooper of India. I was immediately struck by his face by his expression, Mm -hmm. uh, and that was one of the main reasons why I selected him. You have to remember, this is an area of 23,000 villages. Um, It's called Vidarba. It's an area that's mostly uh, cut and growing. And when I arrived there the first time, I knew what my topic was, but I had no idea, well, who am I going to film? Um, Which village, which individuals, what's the story? right. And so there was quite a lot to select from. And so Ramakrishna is there for, for, for many reasons, but visually is definitely part of it.
0: And your other main character, Manjusha, is a young neighbor of his.
3: Yes. Now, Manjusha, the way that we came, she is the first person that actually determined that we're going to be in this village. And I can tell you a little bit about the search for the characters. is sort of like the, the roving audition characters in this film when I arrived in this area and as I mentioned 23,000 villages I started traveling from village to village with a local person who acted as my interpreter and we started by going to each village and meeting the head of the village council, they call called the Sarpanch, explaining the project and asking that person to introduce us to farmers in the village. And I would just sit and talk to them and chat and learn more about the topic. And I quickly realized that these farmers, they're taciturn, they are often depressed. They really carry the burden of a lot on their shoulders, but they cannot carry a film. Because how long do you want to be looking at somebody who's depressed and is not saying a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I found out in my research was that many of those who committed suicide, sort of what tipped them over the edge was that on top of all their financial and farming problems, they had a daughter of marrying age and they could not afford a dowry, which is a big social shame for them. And so I decided, well, let's go for the youth. And um, instead of continuing to go from village to village, I started going to high schools. Went to the principal's office, introduced the project, and asked to meet with the girls of the graduating class. And I would be sitting in a room with 20, 30 young women who were two, three months from being eligible to be married. And chat with them, and quickly you you would find that a couple of them were brighter and more screen-ready, as we said before. And then I would pursue from there, go and meet the family and so forth. And one of my standard questions to a room full of these seniors was, uh, what are your dreams for your life? And one day in one of these dusty school school buildings, uh, a young woman says, my dream is to become a journalist. Why do you want to be a journalist? I want to tell the world about the crisis of the farmers. Obviously, my eyes lit Bingo. just just yeah. like yours right now. And one of the teachers in the school uh, jumped on his motorcycle and said, follow me. And we got to – he led us to her home and introduced us to her mother. And, um, you know, that's what got me interested in her. And once I realized that she would be a, a fantastic device for us because we will be following her, trying to break through the traditions – that say that young women in a village should stay in a village and not pursue a profession, how she, how she breaks through that, as well as seeing her interviewing people to write her articles.
0: On the same story the, you're telling.
3: Exactly, exactly. So once I knew, well, she's, she's going to be in a film and this happens to be her village, then I was looking for a farmer who was among her neighbors.
0: I'm glad you brought up the, the motorcycle. That's kind of an image, you know. It's, it's it's the the green light at the far end of the bay that people keep reaching for. It's uh, and of course your your film is primarily about the effect of the Monsanto seeds on the region, and you know we'll get into that in depth. But but in essence, they've completely replaced the natural native seeds, which could be raised with cow dung, which didn't cost anybody anything, and now these are these incredibly high priced seeds that require equally high priced uh, insecticides and pesticides the farmers don't even have the money for the seeds so they have to go out and get money via some kind of loan either legit or illegit and throughout this you see these tantalizing visions of what they could have if this all works out and and with the bt seeds monsanto actually uses in one of its ads the image of the motorcycle the guy bringing the motorcycle home to his family and next year maybe we'll get a car and it's it's such an ugly tease when it's contrasted with the reality of their lives.
3: It's it's really hard for us here to imagine what a motorcycle could mean to a society that is basically pre combustible engine. <laughs> uh, practically every thing that we see in the film is done with in the, at the pace of the the, the bullock and the cow. Uh, the farmers don't have tractors. Even when they take their their harvest to market, it's with a bullock cart. So compared to that, to have a, a motorcycle is huge. And when you see motorcycles there, there, it's a family vehicle. There would be often five people on a motorcycle. Uh, you know, three kids bunch, kind of squeezing between their parents. Uh, somehow, man, <laughs> and that's moving up. That's right. That's right. And actually, while I was in India, the the big news was that uh, they uh, were just producing the first car that would cost only about 1,000. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, 1,000 U.S. dollars, uh, 50,000 uh, rupees. And everybody was very excited about that. Uh, my crew, for example, I, I use an old Indian crew. Uh, that was one of the topics of conversation. And all I was seeing was, oh, my God, all these people that now are riding these motorcycles are going to uh, upgrade to these nano cars. And the roads are already so choked. Yes. Uh, not only with cars, but with cows and people and everything else. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be even worse chaos and
0: one of the things that's really evident from the film is is how cyclical everything is. And, and with this idea of the dream of something new, obviously, every time you plant a seed, you can plant that new dream with that. You know, the crop didn't come up this year, but here come the BT Monsanto salesman and tell you how new and improved this seed is. What are your choices but to buy the dream and you plant it and everything starts anew. Now you have to wait for the rains. Then you have to wait to see if the, if the crops hold out and you have to see if the seed performs as promised.
3: And this cyclical thing that you mentioned uh, is particularly um, self-perpetuating among people who are not very well educated. So every year they can hope again because they cannot really research and find out what actually has been the performance of the seed that they have to buy. Uh, they're not aware of the fact that now their region has uh, drought three out of every five years. It used to be out of every five, so that means a 50% increase in drought as a result, result of climate change. Uh, and at one point, a farmer in the film says, you know, a farmer has to believe in something. And in fact, at the very end of the film, the I chose to close it with a scene of the farmers talking about the new season, and they sound hopeful, well, maybe the seeds this year will be better. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what keeps a farmer going, because he doesn't really have any other choices
0: and with Gary Cooper too because the three of them then walk off into the sunset. That's so right. there's a lot that happens in between. And we're going to talk about that as we proceed with the show with Mika Pellet here in the studio. We're talking about his new film Bitter Seeds and we have his website listed on our own indeepradio.com and we'll be hearing some music selection from that throughout this hour as well. Stick around, I'm Angie Coiro. This is In Deep. I'm Angie Coyer. We're talking about the film Bitter Seeds, which takes a look at a particular region, representative region, really, in India, where Monsanto seeds have taken over the cotton market. Loan officers, both official and unofficial, have taken over the economy, and farmer suicides occur at the rate of one every 30 minutes. And that's what Mika Pellet went to look into with his film, Bitter Seeds. It's one of three in a globalization trilogy. You'll find all that information at teddybearfilms.com. Can we chase down the side alley? We're talking about some rather grim things here. Teddy Bear Films?
3: Well, I... (laughs) I started Teddy Bear Films in 99. I was already a filmmaker for a few years, made, uh, I think, three uh, films for PBS before that. But in 99, I started making a film that was going to uh, offer a very critical look at Walmart. And I knew that Walmart is a very litigious company. They're, they're known for that. Uh, and, of course, I was worried that they're going to come after me. And so I thought, well, I... What can I do about it? And I named my new corporation Teddy Bear Films thinking, well, if they sue me, the headline will say, Walmart sues Teddy Bear. <laughs> at least in a court of public opinion, I would <laughs> I would be slammed on. <laughs>
0: That's a, and it's reflective of the kind of sense of humor you have to have to look at some of these, you know, heavier duty issues. I, I actually want to commend you about there's. There's always a little bit of relief around the corner because you incorporate in the film the views of local celebrations and the colorful life and the singing and the kids. I mean, this is not a relentlessly grim place to live. It's the economy that's relentlessly grim. And to portray that, you have interviews interspersed with representatives of Monsanto, representatives of the local seed companies that sell the Monsanto, and a number of other people sprinkled throughout I want to draw attention to the man who represented the local seed company, because if you had gone to Central Casting and said, send me the grimiest, slimiest, nastiest man you can to deliver the line that, well, these people are committing suicide, they're basically lazy. Ah, stunned.
3: Yeah, I, I just got lucky there. I, I, I did not interview you know 10 different uh, executives of seed companies. I, I just fell upon this particular guy. And uh, he was very proud of the fact that he knows farmers, and understands them well. And you know, the more the more people are conceited and sure of themselves, uh, the bigger the gap between how they see themselves and how the world sees them. Yes. And that gap is what's interesting.
0: And also portrayed uh, portraying himself much the same way is the loan shark, who. I don't even know how to describe the way he approaches it. The lines are almost out of a mafia film. Well, what can I do? You know, this is my money. This is, you know, it it was very hard to put myself in his position and see how he could every day out of his life have an illiterate farmer sign a piece of paper that basically transfers ownership of his land pending repayment that he knows that farmer probably will not be able to make. I mean, these are some pretty reprehensible types.
3: Uh, And they're very useful for a corporation like Monsanto because Monsanto can keep its hands clean. They're not involved in this loss of land by so many farmers, the consolidation of ownership of the land so that the rich people in in the village own more and more of the land, uh, which at the end of the day is very convenient for Monsanto because right now they have to deal with... Uh, three million cotton farmers in this part of India, and market to the three million mostly poor people, it would be a lot more convenient for them if there were only ten thousand uh, corporate farm owners to deal with who will have a line of credit at a bank and
0: where have I heard all, this song before
3: <laughs> all have TV <laughs> and so they can you know, they can consume television advertising. Uh, it, it's hard to reach people who don't have television, uh, let alone uh, computers. And uh, you actually need to send people into the villages. We see this in a film with, with leaflets. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I, I was stunned uh, when I found out the leaflet that we see in a film being handed out to the farmers, uh, has photos and phone numbers of farmers that can offer testimonials that the seeds are great. And then we we filmed... Our budding journalist Manjusha calling these people and finding out that three out of the four were um, non-existent numbers, and the fourth one was a company shell.
0: Right, right, and that's the kind of they set up a plausible deniability throughout. Um, first, I want to I, I want to establish that I don't want to assume that our audience believes that Monsanto is the world's biggest evil, and we're not doing a, a, a knee jerk slam on Monsanto. What you've presented is a picture of the procedure that Monsanto goes through from the time the salesman arrives at the beginning of the season, makes promises that we soon discover are not accurate about pesticide resistance, about insect resistance, et cetera, about the improved yield this year. Don't worry that last year fell apart. This year's going to be better. They hand out this, as you described, the brochure that turns out to have fake phone numbers and and company shills in, in as farmers. And then you put in this other layer. You bring in the people who explained what's happened ecologically with the introduction of the B.T. seeds. And we see your budding journalist go try to reclaim some of that old heritage by trying to get to the store and saying, please, will you handle the traditional seeds for us? No seeds to be had.
3: Yeah, it was interesting for me to watch. Um, uh, Manjusha—that's her name—transformation. Uh, so throughout um, the two years that we were there, she not only started out her journalistic career by writing an article that eventually gets published, but she also gets radicalized uh, politically, without a whole lot of prior understanding of you know the the contextual story behind all of this and so we see her not only writing about it but kind of becoming an accidental activist mm-hmm. uh to the point that she and being young and still hopeful and oh, i can't believe that that's true how can how can how can it be that the seed stores will not have any other kind of seeds than just uh genetically modified ones and so i filmed her going with uh an old uh, farmer from her village to a seed shop in a nearby town and saying to the seed seller, you know, the entire village will buy the seeds from you if you can provide us with conventional seeds. And surprised to hear that uh, he's not jumping on the offer. Um, At the beginning, I was surprised. How can it be? There are 3 million customers there. Surely many of them would want the product called conventional seeds. How come none of the shops is offering it? If this is free market, uh, you know there would there would be a demand. Why don't you provide the supply? But when you think about it, you realize that it's in the seed shop interest not to offer the cost effective cheap product, which is the conventional seeds. Right. Instead, they are only offering BT seeds, which are four times more expensive, uh, and they require a lot of fertilizers because to have any chance of getting the higher yield that the BT cutting uh, plant promises, you got to give it a lot of fertilizers, a lot of nutrients. So the same people are selling you the fertilizers.
0: Which used to be cow dung.
3: That's right. It used to be cow dung, but the cow dung doesn't work with their genetically modified plant, (laughs) interestingly enough. Uh, And on top of that, uh, the farmers have to use a lot of pesticides. And all of those things are are bought from the same shop. So why would he want to give you a low-maintenance, cheap seed instead? Now, the pesticide is sort of interesting, if I can spend a moment on that. Um, the, the reason that the B.T. seeds were so successful in the first place and why farmer suicide started before the B.T. seeds uh, took over the market is because – You know, you may remember the Green Revolution, Mm -hmm. uh, which started out as like a great thing. It it brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and so forth. But it turned out to be sort of a short-term success uh, because they required the plants, the hybrid plants, required more and more pesticides to the point that already before the BT arrived, the the business model was collapsing, and that's why farmers began to commit suicide because they were already not able to pay back their debts mm-hmm. uh, because just the, the, you know, Mother Nature can only be tricked for a little while and you every new pesticide that we bring, the, the, sooner or later the insects develop a resistance to it and then you need to put more pesticides and more expensive ones and at the same time you're putting more fertilizers into the ground, uh, the soil is losing its nutrients and so forth. So that was sort of the cycle of it even before the genetically modified seeds came on board. Now he comes to the salesman with a a Monsanto technology and they're saying, hey, we got a solution for you. Yes, you will spend more on the seeds up front, but you won't need to spend all this money on pesticides because the genetically modified plant is toxic to the big enemy of cotton, which is the bullworm. Mm -hmm. So you won't need to spend on pesticides. Well, that all makes sense. But again, Mother Nature comes in and, and intervenes. And once the bullworm is out of the way, secondary pests come in, sucking pests. In the film, it's the mealybug, all kinds of other pests that were not a problem before.
0: But now one of their predators out of the way. There's room for them.
3: Exactly. There's room for them. And they love to eat that, those cotton plants. I, I saw it with my own eyes. Uh, and you know they're just as harmful now as the bullworm was before. And so, once again, the farmers are using a lot of pesticides.
0: Talking to director and producer Mika Pellet about his film Bitter Seeds. The irony about the pesticides, of course, is that how they figure in the suicides themselves. The, the farmers, at their, you know, at their very last step, with no money and no chance to retrieve their land from the moneylenders, use the pesticide to commit suicide.
3: Isn't that interesting? The, their last message to the world is, you know, the pesticides are killing us.
0: Is suicide viewed differently in a world where the the predominant um, philosophy incorporates reincarnation? Is it different for someone who says, I'm going to be reincarnated? Uh,
3: You know, I haven't heard anything about that. Uh, There didn't seem to be a huge stigma. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, we were always welcome to film funerals, for example. Uh, Widows were willing to talk. Um, So I, I didn't notice anything different about that than than how we view it. It's just a shame. Now what's, what is interesting is what happens to the family once the husband and father is gone because he is condemning his family to really second-class citizen type of life. The kids are taken out of school because they have to help provide for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're 10-year-old or whatever, they, they can be hired by the, neighbor, by the neighbors as, as farm hands. The mother has to go and represent the family in village meetings, and I saw how that happens, and uh, you know, they're not being heard as, as much as the men. Uh, it's just the nature of the society. So, um, they are, the farmers are really condemning their family to a life of misery uh, by killing themselves. Uh, there is, um, sort of a, a bit of a misguided notion that, um, the widows get this lavish grant from the Indian government. And there is such a grant, one million rupees, but, um, it's only uh, awarded to a very small section of the widows of farmers, because of the, how narrowly defi- the definition is of who is eligible, Ram Krishna, the protagonist of the film, would his wife, if he had killed himself, would not uh, be eligible for it. Why because he never registered the land on his name, mm-hmm. inherited from his father, everybody in the village knows that that 's ram field. Uh, so he never had a reason to do it, and to, to transfer the deed to your name means traveling to a bigger city, which is costly, having to give a bribe, uh, probably having to go there twice because the first time the clerk would say that you don't have all the um, documentation that is needed. Many of these people don't have your know, birth certificate. In India, you don't have an ID. Uh, so everything is complicated, mm-hmm. and so many of them just never do it, and then their, their widows don't qualify.
0: Let's talk about some of the effect of Monsanto on other areas. One of the criticisms I heard of your film, and, and I wanted to check this with you, is that what we're seeing happen with the Monsanto cotton seeds in this region is not necessarily true in other regions. The Other regions are seeing the promised results, that they are seeing the improved uh, yields, and that it's a matter of, you know, the monsoons didn't hit this year, and Monsanto can't do anything about that.
3: Well, if it was a matter of the monsoons, then how come it's going, it's been going on now for 18 years in a row? Uh, in Gujarat, the uh, cotton farmers are doing better, but they're not using BT. They, they stayed with the previous seeds. Uh, the other kind of farmers that are doing well are the ones that have a large farm, where they have already transferred to industrial type of agriculture. Mm. So they the economy of scale works in their favor, they have tractors, they um have a line of credit at the bank, uh they're better educated, uh and then they can they can make a living off that. But the genetically modified agriculture is not just an environmental issue, it's also a socio economic issue. To be successful with that you need to move into industrial farming. Now, the protagonist of my film, Krishna, I picked him because he's very typical. He's got three acres of land. That's what most farmers, there have less than 10 acres of land. And they could never move into that level. They would never be successful. Now, um, this area, which has been growing cotton for centuries and centuries, is semi-arid. 90% of the farmers are rain-dependent. Mm-hmm. They don't have irrigation. So already we know that genetically modified seeds are not suitable because they require a lot of water. Otherwise, you cannot give the fertilizer. You can only fertilize when the ground is moist. So we know that it's not suitable for them.
0: And the original cotton there was suitable for the area because that's where it grew. That's where it started.
3: That's right. And, and, you know, farmers there were never rich, but they eked out a living for their family. Uh, The first uh, railroad Tracks that were built around there were built by the British during the colonial Raj because they wanted to get all the cotton out of this area to Bombay Harbor to send it to textile mills of uh, Manchester and and Liverpool. So there's been cotton there for a very long time.
0: We're going to move to a break and we're going to talk more uh, with the director of Bitter Seeds that film is available online you get more information at teddybearfilms.com the film's not available at the site but uh, if you care to purchase it there you probably can sure. teddybearfilms.com we'll talk more about that and and uh, in fact we'll talk about your trilogy as a whole too so you are listening to In-Deep Radio I'm Angie Crew thank you for tuning in and my guest is Nika Pellet we'll be right back mm. mm uh-huh. In Deep, I'm Angie Coyer. We're talking to Mika Pellet. His film is Bitter Seeds. I wanted to talk about the moods that you managed to create in some of these. And and I don't know if some of the moods this film provoked in me were intentional, but there was something about seeing the the agrarian nature of the society, everything done by foot, by hand. When you see at the end of a film what appears to be a great deal of cotton, it turns out not to be enough, to get uh, Ram Krishna and his family out of debt. But it's a massive amount when you consider every cotton bowl was picked by hand. I felt like a fat, lazy American. I, I did, I just thought, my God, I don't understand that kind of labor. I have never experienced anything like that.
3: But you know, Ram Krishna has three acres of land contrast that with how Americans grow cotton. The smallest cotton operation in this country is 1,200 acres. Mm. Why does it have to be so big? Because everything is mechanized. The cotton picking, if you're thinking of Mississippi Delta with spiritual songs, forget it. It's all mechanized with huge combines. It costs half a million dollars. Uh, and everything is, is done on a corporate kind of a structure. But uh, you know it's maybe it's obvious, but i never really i was never really aware of how much being a farmer in a in a third world country is is a way of life it's not just an occupation. Mm-hmm. These are not people that chose to be a farmer uh as opposed to something else they were born into it that's the only thing they know how to do and it's a life that um you know you don't get, you don't become rich of it but for centuries and centuries, it has worked for a lot of people. They, they know where they belong. They're part of a community. Um, they can envision the, the life of their children and so on. And now all of that is being disrupted because hundreds of millions of them are losing their land.
0: And Well, they're losing their connection to the land. Uh, it, an interesting note, by the way, when you're talking about how this is produced in America, uh, America did produce cotton the same way, uh, you know, pre-Civil War, but that's because everybody had slaves. And, you know, that's, that's the level of labor that you're, that you're talking about. Uh, the other thing that, that I wanted to note about America that I hadn't known until I saw the film was how much of the American cotton crops are subsidized. And
3: Isn't that interesting that yeah. uh, in this country, the BT cotton seeds of Monsanto uh, are still not producing profit for the cotton industry. They are subsidized to the tune of 3 to $4 billion a year. By all of us the taxpayers because they claim that they cannot make a living that they cannot uh, have a profit growing cotton even on this huge corporate level and by the way the farm bill is up for renewal right now as we speak uh, and that's the bill that will renew this these subsidies. To the cotton industry. Um, my film mentions that actually this um, is in violation of U.S. international commitments, and we were fined by the international court $150 million a year for subsidizing our cotton industry. Now, you think that we, we would stop doing it. But instead, not only do we are giving the cotton industry 3 to $4 billion a year, on top of that, we are paying a fine of $150 million every year to the International Court for violating our own agreements.
0: And that's just viewed as the cost of doing business. That's what we do so that we can subsidize the cotton. Right. And that's the cotton that India is competing with.
3: That's right. The, the, um, the, um, the prices are on a world market, and farmers like Ram Krishna in my film are suffering from the fact that Amer- their American competitors can throw their cotton on the world market for less than what it's costing to produce it, and they're doing that because they're getting subsidies from the government. So American cotton growers are not making a living from selling the cotton, but from the subsidies that they're getting.
0: Is that, is that sustainable? I'm, I'm not an economist. Is that sustainable? Can that go on endlessly, that the U.S. subsidizes a losing crop?
3: Unless we all decide that um, we've had enough and that we don't want to spend our money this way. And, you know, we live at a time when, you know, budget crisis is one of the main topics of daily conversation. And we're looking for where we can cut here and there. And I haven't yet heard much conversation about why aren't we cutting off the subsidies to cut in other farm operations, at least from the major corporations.
0: I doubt they're about to bring that up. Wait, that's thats what you've dealt with with the trilogy throughout, You know, the globalization and the corporatization of goods and profit.
3: Yeah, I wanted to uh, put a human face on, on some of these very complex issues of globalization and especially on the people who are victimized by that in faraway countries where it's very convenient for us not to know too much about them and keep this process going. So the way that the trilogy works is the... The films focus on the U.S., China, and India, the the current and the future's economic superpowers. And the first film looks at the consumer, at us, uh, through the story of a small town resisting Walmart from coming in. And then I got interested in how the cheap goods at Walmart sells get made, and that took me to a jeans factory in China – And it's a story of one girl that has to leave the village like a hundred million others, to get a job in this factory. And she is excited at the beginning and descends into sweatshop hell. And once we saw how the cheap goods that we buy get made, I got interested in the raw materials. And that took me to the cotton farmers in India whose cotton gets exported to China's garment factories where they make the jeans that Walmart sells. So that's the, um, the connection of the three films.
0: Well, let's talk about the Indian government and and their response to this. They've known there's a problem with Indian suicides. There's been plenty of uh, with Indian farmer suicides. There's been plenty of press around that. It, it seems as though, much as is true in America, many of the ills that are provoking the big problems are incorporated into the system. Uh, the fact that the the loan sharks are profiting so much, you know, the fact that the companies are doing so well. Is there any real initiative besides just common decency for the Indian government to solve this problem?
3: Angie, let me tell you something about the the Indian government. Uh, I debated the topic of my film with a scientist uh, who, according to Wikipedia, is one of the creators of genetic modification in agriculture, which was quite an honor, actually, uh, in a film festival in Belgium. And when the lights came up after the film, he says, beautiful, moving film, But the problem is the government of India, it's not helping the farmers. And I said, look, I cannot debate the science with you, but I can tell you one thing, yes, it's true that the government of India is incompetent and corrupt, but they've always been that way. The only thing that has changed in recent years is the seeds. So that's where the problem is, let's look at the seeds. Um, Now, what can the government of India do? So um, much of the demands from the Indian government uh, are misguided because they want to give the farmers a relief package from their debts, which would simply allow a farmer like Ram Krishna to walk back into the bank. We we have a scene in the film where he's rejected by the bank because he hadn't paid back his last loan. So they'll be able to go back in there and get another loan at, at lower interest rates, which just funnels more money to Monsanto but it doesn't address a systemic problem. Now, I was very concerned when I made the film that um, I may leave the viewers feeling hopeless. And so I tried to come up with some positive scene, and I filmed a scene of an NGO coming to the village and donating organic cotton seeds to the farmers. Now, that scene is not in a film. Right. And why is that? Well, first of all, the NGO came there because I asked them to. Second, when they explain to the farmers that uh, they will have to leave their lands fallow for three years before it can transfer to organic, you could just see on the faces of the farmers that there's no way they can do that. That's where the government can step in. They need to have a program training and support for the farmers for three years of leaving the land fallow and transfer that to organic. There is one NGO, Navdanya uh, of Vandana Shiva that has adopted five villages. They're donating the the seeds. They're doing the training and they found an outlet to buy these, these organic cotton at higher prices. And there's a store in New York, hopefully other places I'm not aware of where they actually sell this cotton. Now, that's great, but these are five villages. As I mentioned, there are 23,000 villages in this area alone. It's a start. It is a start, but it's a start by an NGO that uh, exists thanks to uh, donations. Mm-hmm. It, should be com- it should come from the government. Now, this last year, the government of India was going to fast-track approval of another genetically modified crop, uh, eggplant, which in, in India they call brinjal. Yeah. And there was such a public outcry that they agreed to do public hearings in 11 cities in India. And in Bangalore, an 83-year-old gentleman gets up in front of the microphone and he says, I was the director of Monsanto in the 1990s in India, and I was instructed by my bosses in America to provide the Indian government with false documentation so that the approval uh, track will go faster for the seeds. Basically, instead of doing the trial, they're supposed to do trials for a few years in the local soil and climate, they provided the results of trials that they did in the United States and pretended that it was in India. There was such a public outcry that um, the government of India decided to shelve for a while the approval of the BT eggplant. So they it is a democracy with a lot of flows, but still it is um, vulnerable to public uh, input. And uh, there is a possible, you know, uh, positive direction there.
0: Has, has there been other effect on either the exact people that you dealt with or the larger system in India since the film has come out? Are, are, I particularly want to know if the slimy, horrible man who blamed the farmers for being lazy and committing suicide, if, if there was any comeuppance for him.
3: Um there hasn't been any comeuppance for him. Uh, the film is shown on a couple of festivals in India, but it's going to be on television in India on a channel called NDTV, which is a 24-hour news channel. And it'll be interesting to see what happens there. My pet project in, uh, is we want to uh, do a mobile tour of villages with the film. And show the film to the farmers. We have a partnership with local f- farmer organizations that will conduct a conversation with the farmers when the lights go up, about what kind of options they, they might have. And we are actually fundraising for that right now, and if anybody wants to contact about us, uh, uh, contact us about this. Um, the website is teddybearfilms.com.
0: It's so funny, as you were saying, that I thought this is the difference between a true documentarian and a Hollywood blockbuster director. You'd never make it; you care too much. You don't just, you know, make your film, hope it survives, and move on to the next money maker. You're going to go take the film around India. I'm sure that's going to be a real profit leader. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about. Um, the effect of your presence on these people, and that's always a difficult thing for a documentarian. How do you portray what's going on there without affecting it? And I'm thinking of Manjusha, for example. I'm, I'm sure she wasn't able to run to Best Buy and get that camera that she was using to, to shoot people. I'm assuming you gave that to her? Yeah,
3: I gave her the camera. And um, it's true that, you know, there is this kind of a notion of purity that the documentary filmmaker is just a fly on a wall and nobody noticed them and they're just recording reality as it unfolds, but um, that's never the case. Uh, just by being there with a camera, even if we say nothing, we certainly are affecting people. Uh, now, I'm, I'm sure that even though Manjusha told us from the very beginning that this is her dream to become a journalist, that our presence and our, us taking an interest in her definitely energized her and made her more determined. And we helped her in a few ways. We gave her the camera. Uh, In addition, my associate producer is an Indian journalist, and she looked at her draft and helped her improve it. Uh, We told her that if she gets to journalism school, she can always contact this person and and get further assistance. Probably uh, the newspaper office where a journalist said to the girl we will write something, and if it's good, we'll publish it. He may have been kinder to her because we were there than otherwise. But you know what? So what? Whether we did that or not, whether she becomes a journalist or not, has no effect on the issue that the film portrays. The film is about how genetically modified seeds are not appropriate for these farmers and are ruining them as well as hundreds of millions of other farmers around the world are threatened by genetically modified farming, which will never work for them.
0: Yeah, I do want to note uh, with Manjusha, I felt some of the most touching parts of the film were her discussions with her mother about her ambitions for journalism. And you could see how torn the mother was. And The mother was illiterate, as as most of the farmers are there. Uh, her husband, Manjusha's father, had committed suicide, so they were on their own. But you could see the pride. You could see the pride when her daughter was published. And she you know, read that out loud to me. It must just be such a different world for her to be looking at where her daughter's entire fate isn't tied up in who she marries, or whether she can marry.
3: Yeah, there is definitely a time. Th- this is a time of transition for young women in, in rural India. Uh, when, when the father commits suicide or just unable to provide for the family, there is a power vacuum. And the young women are doing better than a young men in school. And some of them are allowed to continue their education. And so that means that it, it gets to a point where perhaps the family hopes of the future rest on the girl. And that's something very new. It didn't exist 20 years ago.
0: How were they still working the fields since, since the man of the house had passed away? I, I understand Manjusha was still supporting herself working in the field. Whose fields were they? The family kept them and worked them themselves?
3: The, the family kept the fields. Uh, they have an uncle who is uh, relatively well off, who is helping them, who lives in a village nearby about an hour drive from there. And they hire um, a, a landless farmer in the village to do a lot of the work along with the mother, with Manjusha.
0: Got it. And you will stay in touch with her?
3: Yeah, we've been staying in touch through my associate producer in India, who is checking in with her, and she's studying journalism right now at the University of Nagpur.
0: And uh, quickly, any are, are you now that you're done with the trilogy, are you ready to move on to something else? You're going to focus on getting this out in India and elsewhere? Uh,
3: yeah, not yet, Angie. We, we're doing a lot of outreach here in the United States. Um, here in California, there is an initiative on a ballot for this November, to uh, require labeling GMOs in food. And that campaign uh, has committed to 100 screenings of this film. And we're doing similar actions from Boston to Hawaii.
0: Thank you for coming in. I wish you luck with that and everything else.
3: Thanks, Angie. It's a pleasure.
0: The film is Bitter Seeds. Director and producer is Mika Pellet. And you can find more information at teddybearfilms.com. If you didn't jot that down, it's at our website, indeepradio.com. And that is our show for this week and our first show on our newest station, KKRN in Round Mountain, California. Happy birthday, KKRN. And thank you for bringing us on board. Our executive producer is Gordon Whiting. Our engineer is Matt Fidler. Congratulations to Forrest Phillips, who has now moved up to associate producer. Assistant producer is Cindy Myers. And Jill Fidler runs everything else around here. Our incredible interns are Kristen Stevens and Megan Mina. You can follow us on Twitter at InDeepRadio. We're on Facebook, too, InDeep with Angie Coyro. And you can send us feedback, suggestions, and anything else at our website, InDeepRadio.com. Our theme is by Big Troubles, closing theme by David Gans. Bye-bye.
1: Yes, I know it's gonna get better, cause it almost always does. I can't say much about the who and how, but I believe it just because.
2: The day by day I
1: bond.
0: Thanks for tuning in this week to In Deep with Angie Coiro, a production of Talkback Studios. You can get more information about us at indeepradio.com. And while you're there, you can become a member and support our work. There's a link there to contact us, too, with any questions or feedback. We're developing a series on mental health issues in our country, especially in this economy, and we'd love to have you be part of that. Please send us your topic suggestions, your stories, and your questions through our website. Click the contact button at indeepradio.com. Join us again this time next week for two more hours of in-depth conversation. I'm Angie Crow. We'll see you then. You're listening to WPWC, 1480 AM, Dumfries, Virginia. We Act Radio, home of Washington's progressive working community.